Hi, I'm Lisa Kennedy and you're listening to The Bra and the Brave. This podcast celebrates the creative and the courageous. I am fascinated by those who are talented, forward-thinking and inquisitive. Sharing their stories, wisdom and everything in between, The Bra and the Brave is about people and their passions. So on to today's episode. I'm here and it's, does it say recording your end? It does indeed. And you've got, is that a coffee you've got there? Yeah, it's a quadruple espresso and it's my second of the day. We, we need this energy for this podcast because I've got like so many questions. I'm going to grill you now, George. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Only kidding, only kidding. Well, I will see, as anyone who listens to the podcast knows, it's a very informal start, but I, I am thrilled, genuinely thrilled to be talking to George Scott, who is a director of arts and music documentaries and live concert films, obviously, as well. And, oh... Where do we begin, George? Where do we begin? I feel like my first question to you is, what do you think your first love was? Was it music or was it film? Oh, I think I think it was film. I remember being very young. I mean, I grew up in a mining village in South Ayrshire. My dad always watched a lot of films and he always watched a lot of really obscure films. And I remember once, I was a wee bit older then, but I was still living at home. And um, I remember once coming in sort of late at night and sitting watching something and sitting on the arm of the chair and just starting watching this being completely drawn in by it and it turned out to be La Strada by Fellini so I think I've always had a love of film and a very eclectic love of films you know so and then with music uh, you know I always liked music but the first sort of obsession I had was Kate Bush and I remember uh, my dad going to some conference he was a miner, and he went to some conference up in Fife, I think. And, um, you know, what do you want me to bring you back? And I, I wanted Kate Bush's album, the first album. And I'm the youngest by quite a, a, a degree. As my brother said to me from a very early age, I was a mistake. Um, <laughs> and uh, I remember my dad bringing this album, The Kick Inside, back to me, and um, my brother saying, what are you getting that for? That's way too old for you. Wow. But maybe I was ahead of my time, I don't know. I was just about, you took the words out of my mouth, I was just going to say that. Yeah, Kate Bush definitely played a part in our lives. That was, well, music has just been a a total love, you know, of my family. I just recently did episode 100 with my dad. Um, He's a musician and, you know, he definitely instilled my love of music. So when I had the opportunity to talk to you, I was just so excited because music documentaries, I feel, are just part of our DNA there is not a day that I do not go to my mum and dad and my dad's not watching some concert or some music documentary so how do those two worlds marry together what was it for you that kind of instilled that idea of I'm going to pursue a career in essentially storytelling um yeah I don't don't think I ever thought about it in that way from a very I wouldn't say an early age but certainly from a formative age I wanted I knew I wanted to be in television or film. I had no idea how to do it. You know, I was living in a council estate in South Ayrshire and surrounded by ex-mines that had all been shut down. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I don't know, I I went to London. My brother moved to London and I went to London a few times before I moved. And there was something, considering I come from the middle of nowhere, there was something about the draw of the big city. And I kind of felt very much at home in London. I'd go to films and I'd go to a lot of theatre and things as I went down. And then 
subsequently I got a chance to take a job. I took a job doing accounts, believe it or not, for the, sport, the Sporting Life newspaper. Right. And that got me to London. And then while I was there, I went round all the production companies and so literally knocking on their doors and handing in CV, which when I think about it now, kind of mortifies me because obviously I'd done nothing and I really knew nothing. But I remember meeting this guy um, from what was then called the AIP, which is the Association of Independent Producers. The equivalent now would be packed, I think. And he just was very impressed with my knowledge of film, considering, you know, I live in the middle of nowhere. So I did some free work for them and went to a couple of things and um, just getting experience. And then he phoned me up and asked me if I wanted to work in a student film. Um, so I got unpaid leave and I went off and I worked in this student film for five weeks. And it, it was just a great experience. You know, there was no money. It was, I mean, I I strongly believe it's, it's that, you know, you can go and you can study all you like. But for... You know, something like, you know, film, television, the arts generally, I do think there's a lot of it is about experience. I mean, no no one can teach you about being on a set. No matter how much teaching and learning you can do, nothing replaces the experience of being on a set. And every set is different. And some sets are small, some sets are big. And it's also about how you behave on a set. And I, I, I always tell people that young young people who want experience of whatever and I said you know there's nothing better you can do and you, you can leave university with a degree in filmmaking or whatever there'll be a lot of technical things you know there'll be a lot of knowledge you'll know but there's just so much that you can teach yourself that you can learn yourself and I think that's way more important than any formal education when you're talking about the arts um I haven't done it for a while, but I used to do guest lectures at a couple of universities and just go in and show some things and talk about it and take questions. And it would really shock me the lack of sort of hunger for knowledge that a lot of these young people had. And like you talk about films. I mean, I remember working with a young guy and, and, and at one point he said, I mean, you keep talking about this Fellini guy. What music videos has he made? And, um, you know, and I thought that that kind of sums it up. And, you know, and I hate to talk about it when I was growing up, but when I was growing up, if you were hungry for knowledge, and I was very hungry for knowledge, you had to seek it out. You had to find things. And it was a challenge. Whereas now virtually everything you could want to know is at your fingertips. So there is no excuse, I don't believe, for lack of knowledge of your particular area of interest or work mm. or whatever and do you think that's why there isn't that hunger sometimes because it is just all too easy you know you were saying you know it's embarrassing to look back that kind of hustle of you just turning up on people's doorsteps and you know giving them your cv and i very much think of my career like that you know going out and just going give me a job like i can totally do that you know and just faking it till you make it almost as well just that confidence of like Right, I'm going to have to get in a room and I'm going to have to make this this happen type thing. Do you think there's the lack of hunger sometimes just because everything is a bit too, ah, it's there, I can I can find it out anytime? Um, yeah, possibly. Possibly there's a bombardment that goes on of information now and you don't take it in. But I mean, I, I mean I'm still guilty of, even if I'm watching something, 
and I see someone, I think, God, what do I remember him from? And I'm looking it up, or I was watching uh, Mrs. America recently. So I looked up the, uh, you know, the Equal Rights Act because I didn't know about it. So, you know, I, I'm sure there must be a lot of people at me, but I'm, I'm just hungry for, uh, for that knowledge. I, want, I, I don't want to just take, I don't take anything at face value. I kind of want to know a bit more. Mm. Um, I did a documentary about Duran Duran and Rio, and I talked about it being all very colourful and about it being against a very grey and despondent background of Britain, Thatcher's Britain at that time, and also about, you know, the minor strike. And I was interviewing Bob Geldof, and he started lecturing me about the minor strike and about, you don't know, about this. And I didn't say anything, but I thought, you know, this is a problem. There's people who have a certain amount of privilege. Maybe they didn't want privilege, but he's in a privileged position. And he has an opinion and gets it out. But he actually doesn't know. He doesn't have that experience. And I'm passionate about people knowing things from experience rather than just what's reported. Absolutely, yeah. There's almost like no substitute for being there and being in the mix and understanding it because it's a lived experience. And that... That hunger for knowledge and that collection of information, I mean, the creative process that goes into creating a documentary just must must be tenfold in terms of, like, all the elements that have to come together. You know, even, like, commissioning a documentary, how do you go about that? Do you have the idea first or does someone come to you or is it a bit of both? It's very much a bit of both. Sometimes you have an idea, sometimes someone comes to you and what about doing this? And, um, you know, and then it, it develops like that. I mean, it was like we talked a little bit about Neil Sedaka and someone I used to work with who's no longer here, a, um, a producer called Nick de Grunwald. Um, he had a meeting with someone who was looking after Neil Sedaka in the UK and said, oh, you should make a film about Neil. And then he had a meeting after that with the BBC and said to the head of BBC4, should we make a film about Neil Sedaka? And that's literally how it happened. But then some things you can spend years trying to get off the ground. And are they just labours of love, like things that you just think that hasn't been made and it needs to be? Um, sometimes it's labours of love. Sometimes it's just it's it's a slow process. You know, I, last year I made a documentary for the Classic Album series about Tears for Fears, songs from the big chair. And when we actually started production properly, it was all turned around very quickly in three months. But it was discussed first about six years before. Mm-hmm. And then even I met the management, you know, about 20 months before and we were going to film, the, film there and then, you know, or shortly thereafter. So, I mean, it, it really depends. Some things can just really can take a while and some things just are much quicker. There's no definite reason as to why something is one or the other. Yeah, 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 understand. And there'll be so many contributors and collaborators um, and artists working on a documentary, but as a director, what is your approach? Are you very hands-on? Are, you know, the research and everything that goes into a documentary prior to it being filmed, how involved are you? Oh, I'm totally involved. I mean, it's all me. I tend to work very closely with with someone, and um, I have a producer called Celia Moore, who I've known for 25 years and, and she and I work very, very closely together and we kind of share everything and, you know, talk a lot. She's the type of person who makes loads of notes. Well, it's my notes. Sometimes I'm making notes in computer. Sometimes I'm saving things, but a lot of things go in here. I, 
I'm a bit like a sponge and I become obsessed with something so I know things and then it all comes out naturally when you when you go to talk about it. I just started production on a documentary about Johnny Cash wow. and his performance at San Quentin Prison in 1969. And this came about through someone I've worked with for a while and kind of got sent the footage and footage still been restored and it looks fantastic. So you think, well, what can this, what can the film be? What, you know, what's interesting about it? And, you know, you have lots of ideas going around, but as I started to research it, I discovered it was directed by this guy called Michael Darlow, who was English. And the, the whole thing was made by Granada Television in Manchester. Wow. And I found that fascinating that this very quintessentially British company would go over to America and tell this story of this very American uh, yeah. singer and in this very American situation, this this sort of, I mean, one of the, the most sort of notorious prisons in America, the biggest prison in um, California, and, he, and Michael's still alive. And so to me, it all revolved around about him because to have someone who could tell the story from the perspective of being there rather mm. than reporting on it, like we talked about earlier, I think is really important. Yeah. And to be honest, we spent about three months. I have no idea how to contact this guy, no idea how to fa- find him, because he's, he's 86. So no idea if we believe he was still around and, and things. And literally mm-hmm. two weeks ago, Celia kind of found him, and then we got a contact for him, got in touch with him, and he said, oh, yes, I'd love to. So last week, went straight down and interviewed him. And it was just amazing talking to someone who was actually there. Uh, that you know, incredible. And, and there just be so many moments like that for you where you're just like, almost like a hook of a song, like something that you just grab, grasp onto and you're like, that that's the story. That's where everything's, you know, that's the, the kind of crux or the core of the story. And then just these nuggets of yeah. wisdom that you can get from people who were there. Again, those kind of lived experiences, someone who was actually in the mix when it was happening, was in the room. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, we did a really long interview with him, and he was he was fantastic. But it's this great story that while he was at San Quentin doing some some prep the week before he was going to be filming, they found out this was nineteen sixty nine. They found out Johnny was playing in San Diego, so he flew down with the producer to see the show and meet Johnny, and so to meet Johnny afterwards and very English and said, "Oh, Mister Cash, do you think there's there's any way you could maybe write a song about San Quentin?" And Johnny apparently looked at him and said, go fuck yourself. <laughs> and Michael was like mortified. And, and, and June Carter, um, Johnny's wife, came up and whispered in his ears, that means he'll do it. <laughs> My God, that is actual gold, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is. And then he, he talks about how they were filming the concert and had no idea until they started saying, I've got a new song for you and this guy's, this one's for you. And started singing San Quentin. Jeez, oh, that is incredible. These are the moments that you must live for, I guess. That's where the excitement comes for, for you. Because there's so much work goes into a documentary. Finding these wee, again, like I say, nuggets of gold, it must just be like, it takes it to another level. Yeah, yeah. I feel very privileged to do the job I do. I feel very privileged you know, like I say, my dad was a miner. To think that he went down a coal mine every day and I get to sit and interview people 
and learn more and, you know, often have a good time and get taken to different places throughout the world, you know. Mm. I'm very privileged and I don't I don't think I ever take it for granted. And I think that um, when I'm sitting there with Michael Dallow, I think this is a real honour to be able to sit and interview this man and get his stories firsthand. Yeah, of course. I mean, I very much feel like that with this podcast. This started as a passion project and the stories that I've been told and the people I've been able to converse with it has actually been one of the best decisions that I've ever made. I mean, the fact that I'm sitting here talking to you is just a joy, you know, and I'm learning all of the time, like, you know, you say you are as well. It really is like a privilege to hold space for people as well. The art of interviewing, as as I interview you, is that something that you feel you've developed over your career? Was it something you were very comfortable with going into the world of documentary making? Um. It's it's not something I knew I could do at all. And also, if, I think if you had asked me what making a docu- documentary was, I probably wouldn't have thought that interviewing was a big part of it. Um, years ago, and I'm talking about 22 years ago, I was in New Zealand making a documentary for Channel 4 about this man called Terry Wiles, who is one of the most affected victims of thalidomide. Um, and he was born with no arms and no legs. I was producing it, and a woman called Sarah Boston, who I've known for years, was directing it. And we sat down to do an interview with him and his wife. And she turned to me and said, George, I think you should do this because you've got a relationship with them. They they kind of trust you. And I'd never done any interviewing before, as far as I remember, really. And maybe a little bit, but mm. I mean, nothing major. But I had sat there and had to interview this man and his wife about their relationship and about his disability and it was quite profound and that's really where it all started and it's it was a real lesson for me and I thought it was quite brave of Sarah because it was her film but she could tell that she would get the best out of the interviewees by me conducting Mm -hmm. Uh, the interviews. I mean, she sat with me and did some of the interviews and and we subsequently worked together on some other things and would split the interviews depending on who was going to be sort of get the best results, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And do you have one question that is always your go-to for anyone that you're speaking to? Um, If I'm doing something about music generally, the key for me is always the first question because I think that all these people sit down and they're interviewed all the time and they get the same interview, the same questions. They always get asked the same things. And I kind of try, always try and think of something that's a bit left the field. I couldn't even tell you what an example of one of those, but it's it's kind of trying to think of where you start so that you don't ask the question and they're sitting opposite you and you can almost feel them sigh mm-hmm. and here we go again. So you've got to ask them something. So you've got to think about it and then they engage. And to me, the interview will start to go well after that. And I mean, more than once I've, I've had, you know, interviewees say, God, that was a really interesting question. So, I mean, hopefully I'm doing something right. At the end, uh, when I'm doing music, I've, often I will just throw in, how do you sum up that album or that person or or whatever? And I often preface it by saying, you know, look, this is an odd question, but you might not be able to answer it. But it's just it. Sometimes it can be fun. 
And I would say 50 to 60% of the time you get something really interesting out of that. A third of the time, it doesn't work at all. Hmm. But it's worth it just to throw it in because nobody really expects it. And then it can produce something really interesting and exciting and different. And that's the, the art of storytelling, isn't it? It really is just finding those those answers where you're like, yeah, never expected that. Just something that, that has never been said before. It sparks a memory and someone just uh, in that moment give you that, that, that gold. If I have any real strength, I would say my strength is interviewing. I could sit down and interview anyone, even with little preparation. I can come up with something to talk about and, and do. And I, I can tend to be able to get people to talk. I would say if I've got a weakness, and I think it's really important to recognise your weaknesses, my, my weakness is either the blank page right at the beginning or starting the edit. Because I have all this stuff in my mind and being able to distill it out, I, I find really tricky. So the editor I work with mostly is my partner. And an editor is your first audience. And I also think that and certainly the way he likes to work is that you give him the footage and he comes up with your first cut. Got you. Doesn't want the director anywhere near it. Then you get to see it. And I love working that way because I am I'm great at reacting to something. I think I'm very good at seeing something saying, no, that doesn't work. We need to do this. Let's move this to here. I, can, I, I have a clarity. I, I totally can see the film. Um, and I guess it's like fresh eyes then, because you're just being so immersed in the process of making it. Then, you know, if you're able to hand it over for that moment to then see it again with fresh eyes, then just instinctual, be able to approach it like, yeah, I know what this needs to be now. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, a great example of that is, again, some time ago, 15 years ago, I made a documentary, which I produced again, I didn't direct, and Sarah Boston was directing it. Uh, about four women who were widowed in Pinochet's coup in Chile in 1973. And we went out there and, I mean, I interviewed two of the women. And it was incredibly, incredibly um, deep and profound experience. I mean, being shown round and filming in the National Stadium, which is where, which was used as a huge de- detention camp for prisoners and where people were tortured terribly. I mean, it was very, very, very profound experience. Um, and I remember uh, having come come back, and I was actually in Rome working, and Phil was editing um, this, and he phoned me up and he said, you know, there's a, there is a real problem here. He said, I'm not getting the emotion that you got. Right. And that's... To me, one of the reasons that you have an editor who's completely detached from from the process, because um, we we lived that, we shared that experience. We, I mean, had all the emotions, and and it was very emotional sitting opposite someone telling you how, you know, the husband that they loved was tortured and then effectively killed, and how they were imprisoned, and their daughter was in the chamber next door being tortured I mean things like that it just it leaves a mark on you but what you have we had to then figure out is right how do we how do we relate the mm. experience that we had to the audience because obviously it wasn't coming through on on the initial edit and Phil worked really really hard with Sarah on how interweaving those stories and getting the emotion out and it ended up being quite an emotional piece of work 
I watched it again a couple of weeks ago and it, I found it really moving. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, because I'm just thinking from a dance perspective, you know, if I'm choreographing something and, you know, you're totally immersed in it and you think that the emotions and the story that you're trying to convey is coming across. And it's very interesting when maybe a director comes into the room and then has their input and their perspective on it. it yeah, it can be quite jarring, obviously, sometimes where you realise that maybe the message isn't quite right yet. Yeah, yeah. I can only imagine there is a million and one highlights in terms of your career, but have there been particular pivotal moments or even like pinch me moments? Do you even get like starstruck or are you just in a position where you're like, well, you know, another famous person is just another person? <laughs> um, I don't think I get, I, I get starstruck, really. I mean, I, I think that there is people who you hugely admire and therefore it's a slightly different experience when you meet them. Mm. It's also different if you sometimes you meet people. So I, I mean, we were talking about Cruel Separation, the, the film about the women widowed in Chile. Just after I'd done that, I, w- I, was, I went to Quebec to interview Donald Sutherland about Fellini's Casanova. We keep coming back to Fellini. Um, <laughs> and it was quite a process to, to get this with him, arranging it with him, and then... He lives in the middle of nowhere, almost on the American border, uh, on the banks of something called Lake Mifremegog. And he was he was great, great interview, fascinating man. And then afterwards, he said, I'll take you to lunch. So we went for lunch, and you know, and that's the kind of pinch me moment. Of thinking I'm sitting having lunch with Donald Sutherland, but then I started telling him about crew separation, and we were talking about that. And then at the end of the lunch, he said, "If you want someone to narrate, I'll do it for you for nothing." Wow. I mean, that was quite remarkable. I always talk about this experience. We, 20 years ago, made a documentary for the BBC's Omnibus Arts Programme about Elizabeth Taylor just before she was made a dame. And I was in LA. We were going to film on the Sunday. And on the Friday, I was invited up to the house to be shown around. And I went up and we, we'd gone in the sort of office entrance. It was quite a... She lived in Bel Air, and it was a very humble house for Bel Air. I mean, it's still Bel Air, but it was a humble house for Bel Air. <laughs> um, and I remember um, sort of being shown around, and you go through the dining room, and then there was a, the, the Oscars and the BAFTAs on the wall and uh, on the shelf, and then there was all these famous paintings on the wall. And then I was going out the main door where I was being shown so that we'd see where we'd bring our equipment in. And suddenly Sugar, Elizabeth's dog, um, appeared. And I thought, if, if um, the dog's here, then uh, Elizabeth Taylor must be nearby. And, and then suddenly Elizabeth Taylor appears in this long nightdress. Oh, my word. <laughs> and um, I was introduced to her. And I, I went, Dame Elizabeth, it's an honour to meet you. And obviously no one had said, had called her Dame before because... You know, it only just happened quite recently. And she almost giggled and she took my hand and, you know, and we had a very brief chat. And then as I was standing by the door, the, the front door opened, kind of pushing me out of the way, and in walks Rod Steiger. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, this is just very surreal. And I remember getting in the car, pulling out of our driveway, and there's the gates closed, just pulling over to the side of the road saying, this is not, not normal for... You know. <laughs> totally. so, for someone from a mining village in South Asia. 
I was going to say, if my dad could see me now. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a bit like that. It was very... Jeez. And on the same project, I was in New York and I, I was killing time in between shoots and I remember it was February, it was snowing, I went to see a film and I came out the film and my phone rang and I said, hi, can I speak to George Scott? And I, hi, this is George. Hi, George, this is Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> and said, because we were going to interview her in a few times, but a few days, but that's that's what it was like that she just picked up the phone and she turned up on her own, no hair, makeup, and it was quite remarkable. Again, on the same project, I interviewed Angela Lansbury. It was in my hotel room in Los Angeles, and she was sitting in my my bathroom having makeup done, and I was talking to her. And she started singing a song from Sweeney Todd to me. <laughs> I was talking about it. What? This is, this is very bizarre. Love it. You have the best stories, George. You must be great. You must be like the, the best party guest ever. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it, well, it's funny because you do, you actually forget about them. It's just you start to talk about them and one thing brings out another and brings out another. Of course. And, and all the people that you've spoken to and collaborated with and interviewed over the years, what is the one thing do you think that connects us all or that makes us all really just the same? Oh, goodness. Um, I think ultimately we're all just human beings trying to do the best we can. And it doesn't matter if you're Elizabeth Taylor in a lovely big house or if you're, you know, Stevie Nicks or if you're a lesser known jazz singer. I think that you're all trying to do the best that you can. Um, I think that's that's really what connects us. Um, I think everybody's story is different. And largely, I try and do films without narration. When you, you have narration, you're automatically editorialising. You're automatically, you're deciding what's being said, what the audience hear. Whereas I much prefer it when you're only hearing the words of the participants, the interviewees, I think, the audience gets to make up their own mind what's being said and interpret what's being said. Yeah, that's interesting. And like you were saying, the, the process to, to having a film commissioned, whether that's something that you're interested in doing or someone comes to you and you know that sparks an interest in yourself, have there been particular projects that have been a total labour of love like because you love that artist or that band or just that story that have been really special? For you, because you've been able to make that documentary? Well, there's a few of those. There's a, an American jazz singer um, called Madeline Peru who had a huge album um, called Careless Love in 2003. And it was, it's a, you know, a couple of million copies, which is huge for jazz. And you recognise the tracks. A lot of people don't know who she is. She had this reputation for being difficult or being tricky. And there's been this. She couldn't cope with the success and she had disappeared. And all this was manufactured. And I went to New York to meet her before we filmed and sat with her manager in a record company's office. And she was just like so down to earth and lovely and started quoting Robert Burns to me. No way. <laughs> and her dad had been a real linguist and, and she recited the whole of To a Moose. And then we went and made this film and it was just, I've become, we became very good friends. In fact, she came over to Glasgow for my wedding last year. And um, she's just a really special person, a great artist, really great artist, but really special person. And I feel as though when I interviewed her, 
it was almost like a therapy session. She really opened up about so much and there was there was no holds barred. And not that it was a, a prying in any way. It was just, it was a very natural process. Like I say, we became really good friends and, um, you know, I love her, I love her work and uh, I love the film that we made. And that was my type of music. So we, you know, we were able to get into it and I could ask her to do anything. That's a sing for me and we'd film her singing just with, with guitar and, it, you know, it was wonderful. The opposite of that, I got approached by, again, the producer I worked with a lot at the time, Nick de Grunewald, and he had this passion for reggae. And he wanted to make a documentary about Toots and the Maytals, and he had spent ages and ages persuading the BBC to do it. And ultimately, I found myself directing it. And I didn't think I was necessarily the right choice. I knew nothing about Jamaica. I knew nothing about reggae. I didn't like reggae. But I found myself in, in Jamaica and I fell in love with the place and I fell in love with the music. And I kind of feel as though that I took the audience on the same journey that I went on. So for me, it was a discovery of the music and the Lovely. land. You know, so it's kind of two different examples mm, how, yeah, yeah. how the process works. Yeah, it's funny that like the, the opportunities that are presented, sometimes they feel absolutely right and sometimes they feel like a bit this isn't for me or I'm going to go into this but I'm not sure you know if I'm going to enjoy it and then they can be the most surprising yeah yeah that's not there's not many things that I've done over the years that I haven't got to love there's a couple of couple of occasions where you know I've done something where I would rather not have or because the process wasn't wasn't very fun I mean I, I kind of I always say that I mean, what we do can be incredibly stressful and it can be hard work, you know, working all sorts of hours. And I feel that, well, there's no point in doing it unless you like it and you enjoy it and it's fun because otherwise do something that's not stressful. Yeah, well, yeah, like all the countries, and you know, that you've mentioned just in, in this chat, like all the, the travel and the long hours, like you say, and, you know, if you're here in Scotland, like, you know, you're then having to deal with different time zones and working with people and yep. just everything that must go into it. Yeah, like the passion needs to be there for it. The spark needs to be there. Yeah. So even last night, I mean, I was in bed emailing this woman who I'm waiting for photographs for on, on a film and saying, right, I have to go to bed now. I hope you could, you're happy with everything and you can solve overnight. And then she said, agreed everything, sent me things in the morning, but there's actually still a problem. So I now have to wait until we're in, San Diego time before Jeez. I can can get in touch with her again. Gosh, yeah. How do you how do you switch off when you're in the middle of a project? Are you able to to kind of put it to one side for any time, or are you is it just constantly ruminating? I have real problems switching off. Um, and I you know ask any of my friends or say that I'm kind of um, I have a fuse to my phone. I mean, it's interesting because during lockdown, I, I still had some some work that had to be done, but What's interesting is that um, I tried to make sure that weekends were still weekends. Someone once said to me the, about lockdown and said that, well, every day is Saturday. And I think that's that's true. But I've, I tried to make clear so that on Saturday and Sunday, I, I didn't do any work to keep myself sane. And I think I find it really difficult to switch off. One thing that will make me switch off is cooking. It's the only thing that I can do that kind of, takes me away from what I'm doing. I find it dif difficult often sort of watching programmes because you can't detach yourself enough from not saying, 
oh, I don't like how they've shot that or oh, I love yeah. how they've shot that, you know. Sometimes I like to watch, you know, things like Homes Under the Hammer or A Place in the Sun because it's just so removed from what I do that I can switch off. This podcast is obviously called The Bra and the Brave. And I don't often ask this, but I just was kind of inspired to ask you, what is bra and what is brave about what you do? Oh, well, I mean, bra is everything I do. Getting to, even last week, going down and meeting this 86-year-old who filmed Johnny Cash, that's bra. Getting mm. to meet some of my heroes, getting to sit opposite people like Eric Clapton or, you know, a bit, it's not even a bit, a bit famous people because, you know, for one of the documentaries I'm, I'm working on, I had to interview a guy who wrote a biography of Andy Warhol. I mean, that's fascinating as well. So I think virtually anyone I meet and interview is fascinating. I mean, last year I, I interviewed Olita Adams, who I just love, and she was just one of the loveliest p- people you've ever met. I mean, that's bro. And I feel my life has been enhanced by meeting those people. And I feel very honoured to mm. be able to sit opposite these people and interview them or get them to open up and talk about deep things or problems or troubles, as mm. well as passions, you know. Of course. Yeah, a lot of people say in the podcast, like, it's quite a cathartic experience for them you know, look back for a second on what they've achieved, pursuing their passion, whether that be, you know, in a career or whether that just be a hobby. Um, I've been so lucky to speak to so many people and like that, it's not necessarily what they've achieved, how much success. It's just that their story, their their life journey thus far is totally unique to them, like a fingerprint. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, recently, I was talking to someone who said, we've got a real issue congratulating ourselves. And we need to pat ourselves on the back more often. It's really easy and common for us to criticise ourselves or to find the flaws and the fault, but not to say, well done. And I suppose, in a way, this and talking to you is a wee bit of a pat in the back. Good for, for you, George. I feel like you, you absolutely deserve that pat in the back. But I think it's, it's, it, this has came up a few times in the podcast. I think um, Scottish people really struggle with that kind of, oh, I don't want to get a big heat, don't want to appear to think I'm above my station. It's a trait that we have that um, sometimes we, we struggle with our success. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think also in, in Scotland, society tends to tell you to be happy with your lot, not to want more. And I think you should always want more. I think there's nothing wrong with wanting more. And I think if... You went to private school, you'd be told to want more. You'd be told to expect more. So I don't think that should be any different for the rest of us who went to a comprehensive, you know. I think that's really important. And what is brave about what you do? Oh, I don't know if there's anything brave about what I do. I I hope that people get something out of what I do. So therefore it can it can provide some someone with a bit of joy or a bit of happiness or a bit of insight or a bit of comfort. I don't know. I mean, things like cruel separation about Chile, well, hopefully people learned about something that's not actually talked about that much these days. You know, it's very easy to forget. And I mean, and that wasn't even 50 years ago. So that, that I mean, that's maybe brave. I think 
driving around South Central Los Angeles trying to film um, what we call B-roll, some general views, with people turning and chasing you in the car. That might have been brave, but um, <laughs> <laughs> or just foolish. <laughs> I love it. When, when I had to do that, shoot, the cameraman I normally work with refused to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I was obviously just foolhardy and say, oh, don't be so ridiculous. Yeah. Give so, me that camera. I'll yes. get it done. Come on. So I found someone else and, you know, we got chased out of centr- South Central LA, but hey, we got it. You got you got the shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and is there a wish list of documentaries, films that you would like to make, subjects that you would like to cover? Um, and if so, can you divulge any of those? <laughs> well, you know, I love Kate Bush. There is no one ever comes close to Kate Bush and there has not been any really good film made about her. Um, there's only really been one film that I've seen that was made about her and I don't feel as though it did her justice. Um, the problem is she would never do it, um, so I don't think it will ever happen. But I would love to take her genius to a, a new audience. I don't know, there's, there's always things that come up and you think, oh, I'd love to do that. Um, it's difficult to think. I'm fascinated by I'm fascinated by lyrics. I love lyrics. I'd love to make a program about lyrics. Yeah, yeah. please do that documentary, George. I, I love <laughs> that. There's, there's a guy. My my brother did a, a show about a lyricist called E. Y. Harburg um, years ago, and that got me really into that. And I find it fascinating. He wrote a song called "Brother King Spare a Dime," which is the song of the Great Depression. It's genius. And then a few years later writes what is probably the most optimistic song ever written, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, you know, and I love the fact that the same person can can do that. Absolutely. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Vogue's 73 questions. No. Well, they do this thing, it's actually on YouTube, where they have a star at their home and they film them walking through, you know, one of these beautiful mansions that I'm sure you've been accustomed to enjoying over the years George and it's very you know it's very staged they've obviously been given these questions in advance and they've thought of their answers so we are doing the brawn the brave version of this George but I haven't told you the questions and there's no choreographed dance around your house I'm afraid but um, I wonder if you'll indulge me as a I've, I've selected a few for you from the list of 70 odd questions okay and these are not the questions that appear on Vogue I've no copied them I've made my own right okay <laughs> Right, okay, here's one. Best sound ever. Oh, that has to be the sound of water against anything. But I mean, mostly the the sea against the, uh, you know, the land, whether it's the beach or the rocks. I mean, that, that has to be the best sound ever. Three years ago, I was taken to Maui in Hawaii to do a shoot. And... Everyone has always goes on about Maui, how it's the most magical place, and I didn't get it. Um, the moment I stepped off the plane, I went, okay, I get it. There was something about the place, you just get it. My hotel room, it was like, it looked like a 1950s Soviet block, concrete block. Right. Really, really unappealing place. But it was right on the ocean, and I had this huge balcony overlooking palm trees, sand, beach, and the Pacific Ocean. And it was just remarkable. And I I don't sleep very well generally, and light is a real problem for me 
Um, so I like all dark. Well, I, I slept that night with the, the balcony doors open and the curtains open and, and just listening to the sea. And it was quite remarkable. So that's definitely the, the, the most special sound. This is why I ask these questions for those answers. <laughs> okay, this is hard. If you could only hear one song from now on, which song would it be? Oh, that's really difficult. It's it's like when you say these things, I almost want it to be top five. It's difficult to choose a song, but one number would obviously have to be Kate Bush, and it would be a song called Hello Earth from the second half of the Hounds of Love album. And the second half of the Hounds of Love album is a concept piece called The Ninth Wave, a, a suite of songs. And it's the second last song in that. And to me, I remember even going back to when it was released, lying in bed with all the lights out, just any ambient light that was around and listening to that song. And I still think it's one of the greatest things ever written. I mean, I go back to old American standards and, you know, there's a song called Stardust by Hoagie Carmichael, Mitchell Parrish, I think. And it's just something about that song that just I love. So I don't know. Those are the things that spring to mind. Love it. Brilliant answer. Now, you have been in many rooms and heard many stories, but if you could be a fly on the wall in any room at any time in history, which room would it be and who would be in it? Do you know, there's, there was a conference where Stalin and um, Roosevelt and Churchill all met to kind of dis- discuss the, what was going to happen in the Second World War and... Um, how the future was going to be, how Europe was probably going to be carved up. I really would, I would kind of loved to have been in uh, in that room. That's, that's, to me, is kind of quite special. I'm fascinated like by the Second World War. Really? Yeah, no, I'm really fascinated by the Second World War, everything about it. Not really the war in the East, but what happened in Europe, because it's it's 75 years ago. I mean, it's not long ago. And... I always wonder if we'll ever go back to something quite that mad. I'm really sad to be ending this conversation. I feel like I could just pick your brain forever. You are a very, very busy person. A very busy person. I, I have to say, I now know how to answer that question about flying the wall. I just would like to be a fly in the wall any day you doing your job, George. I'll just be following you about for sure. <laughs> it's, it's funny, the flying the wall thing, is. it's really interesting because, you know, I think if you think about flying the wall, there could be personal things where you think, oh, I'd, I want to be flying the wall when, you know, when Kate Bush is writing a song or, you know. But actually it's about, I think it's about real things that happen that you, that are never properly reported. And mm. uh, in a way, I think the success of the TV series The Crown is about whether it's real or not, about making us flies in the wall in the life of the the British royal family. Yes, so true. And my last question that I ask everyone is, what is your favourite Scottish word or phrase? Oh, it's very funny. I I think I told you that um, I got married last year in Glasgow and those people came from New Zealand, those people from Canada, from America, from Germany and England, of course. And for all those people who weren't Scottish with an envelope on the table with their name on it, and inside was a glossary of terms. Yes! 
and it, it's it's funny because of things like I love words like drich and glake and shugly. All these words are kind of onomatopoeic in a way, but they're 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 just Scottish. And I, I think what happens is you don't hear a word for a while, and then you hear it. And so I wouldn't say what my favourite Scottish word is, but the one that I've rediscovered recently, which just made me laugh so much hearing it, was high hygiene. <laughs> yeah. I just, the high hygiene. I just thought that was absolute genius. Yeah, but that would be like somebody at the council or a high hygiene at the council. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw something... Someone being interviewed and talking about Nicola Sturgeon and referring her to the as the high hygiene, which I thought was quite um, funny. She should have a badge with that on. I feel Aye, like yeah. somebody's ought to make her a badge. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of first minister, it just says high hygiene. High hygiene. Do you know that's so funny? Because I was thinking that the day there, how obviously prime minister, and then she got called first minister. That would have been that would have been a perfect choice of title yes, for sure. Yes, exactly. They missed out. They missed a trick there with that one. High hygiene's <laughs> questions in Parliament. <laughs> Now over to the Scottish Parliament for high hygiene questions. I mean, surely that has to happen next. Come on. <laughs> George, this has been an absolute delight. I can't thank you enough for doing this. It's my pleasure. really is. It was really nice it's to meet you. It made it very time. easy. Oh, that's kind. God, gosh, coming for you, that's, that's high praise indeed. So thank you very much. <laughs> you were on the hot seat today for a change. <laughs> yes, no, no, it's not It's not usually this way around. But no, thank you very much. And I um, wish you all the best with your next projects. I'm excited to see what you do next. And thank you so much for becoming a Broad Brave Clan member. Thank you very much. And it's been a, my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Broad and the Brave podcast about people and their passions. Join us next time for more insight and inspiration from my wonderful guests. Bye for now.